Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. The Learning Scientist Podcast is funded by the Wellcome Trust and listeners like you. Hello, we're here in London at the Early Conference, and we are here with Ignacio's Chaus. Would you like to introduce yourself and maybe tell us about your interesting name? Hello. Um, well, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm from South Africa, and as you said, I'm Ignatius Goes, which is a totally uninternational name. So usually people call me Ignatius or Ignatio, um, and my surname is actually uh, originally French, Gaucher, because we were French Huguenots. We went to South Africa in 1692. So. Um, but then, because it was a Dutch colony at that same stage, it became Goos. But I've been called Gauss and Goose and all other kinds of names as well. So I react on every way, which way you would pronounce the name. So um, could, if you could tell us a little bit about your position in South Africa and your, your research area, sort of your background there. I'm a professor at the University of South Africa, which is a distance tuition university. We have got 400,000 students all over the world um, and up to doctoral level as well. I've got many students, say, from the States and Canada and Germany and so on. And my field that I currently work in is mind, brain and education science. And I work in the field of the scholarship of teaching and learning. So I've developed a program to help my own students uh, to learn better because I feel, you know, if as a lecturer I only deliver content, I'm actually not earning my salary, I'm not doing my work. I have to tell them as well and model to them how to master the content. And that then developed into a program that has been supported by companies that I work in schools. So I have to make this intelligible and usable for people or learners even at primary school level, um, secondary school level. I work with students also at contact universities like medical students, dentistry, actuaries, uh, engineers and so on. And then also in the workplace, how to do learning in the workplace. So from small to adult um, teaching people how to learn effectively. Yeah, and so you, you've developed a framework and you're here at the conference presenting your work on, on the framework. Yeah. You see, um, this all stemmed from a personal interest, and I've done, I think, more or less every course on study strategies available. And every time I felt that, but I wonder whether these people actually use this in uh, real academic studies. You know, it's good to remember 10 things from your grocery list, but it's not really, you know, scalable to a thousand or 10,000 facts that you have to remember and understand and use in real uh, life circumstances. And the other thing that I've been exposed to is I think about uh, every neuromyth possible. And um, that is, I was wondering why is it so sticky? And why do you, we can't get rid of this? And, the, and what I see is that Neuromyths are so pervasive because um, people want to know something about the brain and neuromyths um, actually make something difficult very easy to remember. And because of that, people feel that, okay, this is believable. And I thought, but now, how can I make solid signs, reputable signs, usable by all, putting it into a framework where you can actually um, get all the different little bits of research that's coming to the fore that I can uh, 
put it into a workable, usable framework that even a primary ch uh, school ch a child can understand. Yeah, yeah. So if you could tell us a little bit about the framework, and I know you, you're presenting a poster and it's, it's very visual. It lends itself uh, quite nicely to that format. And so we can, um, with your permission, post the the poster up on the show notes as well for listeners so that they can go and look at it a little bit of dual coding there you're most welcome to do so yes yeah, so could you could you tell us a little bit about the framework yes you see um, what I teach students is that you have to kind of spiral through the work it's not a linear process it's quite messy but it, you still have to structure it and that's why I chose as my metaphor a spiral and it's based on the Fibonacci code you know about the beauty of learning mm -hmm. um, and I actually identified six aspects which is involved in the learning process and with a seventh one which is metacognition and uh, so that the Fibonacci code is 1.618 you know so mm -hmm. it's, it's, so it's something like that it's actually not uh, linked at all that's just a metaphor but mm -hmm. the spiral has got six aspects. Firstly, it's about planning, where you have to begin with what you are doing. And then it's about doing it. That's the go aspect. The third aspect is no to mistakes or to recurring mistakes, because we all make mistakes along the way, but that's not the problem. It's a learning opportunity. The fourth aspect is about help, and that is learning how to learn and some other aspects. The fifth aspect is about testing and gauging um, and evaluating how far you've gone so that is not sitting to write a test but it's for yourself and the sixth aspect is about um, celebrating success but also to apply what you have learned in real life situations so that's the spiral and then the seventh aspect is the metacognition where you think about each of these aspects theoretically and practically and how am I doing with but the idea is that it's not linear right so you're you're not just going from one step to the next to the next no it's absolutely not linear um, the planning um, and the beginning that is um, linear mm -hmm. and you have to get to an end point of some kind but you know how do you uh, rectify mistakes how do you learn how to learn and so on that happens along the way as well as the testing mm -hmm. and probably reevaluating the plan which is uh, presumably part of that that helping yes. phase that, that, that's the metacognition mm -hmm. about it as well as along the way you see how am I going because actually this is like a journey mm -hmm. um, I'm at the stage where do I want to go how do I get there and along the way so um, how do I measure my progress? So I have to plan where I'm going. I have to start walking. Uh, if I uh, divert, I must, that's the mistake that I must rectify. How do I get help along the way? How do I see how far I've gone? And to say, okay, did I reach my goal? Yeah, so how do you envision teachers or maybe even students and parents utilizing the framework in practice? Okay, because this is ultimately memorable. Um, you, this is so easy because that's something that you do every day. This now, when you read anything about um, research on teaching and learning, you can fit it into one of these aspects. So for instance, if I think about um, uh, to become available to learn, mm -hmm. you know, um, to think how can I become calm and focused, uh, that is part of the planning phase because before I start I must become available and 
so then you can fit it in there. On the other hand, if you uh, see something about research about how to uh, do practice testing all the way, that fits into the, the testing phase where I can say, but okay, this is where I do it and how do I do it. And even do I, though I do it all along the way, I know where to uh, kind of put this information so that I can memorize it for later or mem- remember it for later use. I'm very curious about the testing phase. We're, we're biased because in, in that sense because our research area is retrieval practice and how you can learn from um, testing practice. And so you mentioned um, using tests to sort of evaluate and then almost like a metacognitive piece, right, to see how well you're doing and then to make adjustments. Does the framework uh, think of it as sort of a self-assessment or does the framework involve, you know, ways of thinking about it as a learning opportunity, you know, direct effects of retrieval practice on learning? Um, you see, one of the things that I've uh, heard from the uh, learners that I teach this to is that uh, it's almost a liberating experience to think about tests, not as the thing that you go and open a paper and have to write, and uh, which is very uh, something that they don't uh, particularly like. The fact that they can see that testing is something that you do all along the way which is just giving you feedback about your progress. Um, and that the more you test yourself along the way, the less, um, the less problematic or the less stressful is the actual taking of the test. And there are various, various strategies that you can use to do that. Um, and practice testing is one of it. Uh, I actually use in this whole program, or uh, one of the strategies that I th- see is extremely helpful for all students, even medical students and uh, veterinary students and so on, is the method of Loki. Mm. Because that is ultimately scalable. You can have seven subjects with uh, hundreds of pages and so on, and you can actually use that um, and it, it works well. It works well. So for those who maybe aren't familiar, could you describe the method of, of Loki? The method of Loki is actually a two and a half thousand year yeah. old strategy. Uh, Simonides of Caius, it had a very unfortunate beginning, which I would not uh, tell now about the, the uh, building falling in and killing all his audience, mm-hmm. but that you can go and read up about. The fact of it is you use something that is known to you, mm-hmm. either a place or an object or a journey uh, that you have, and you link what you have to learn to objects in that. Because mnemonic strategies usually, so for instance how I did it when I was a student, you know, I made a little um, sentence of the beginning of the letters of the headings, but then I forgot my sentence. (laughs) So because you have to learn both your strategy and the new information, that's a bit, um, it doesn't work as well. But because uh, with the method of Loki, what you use is, areas or objects that you know that you don't have to think about. The only thing that you have to think about is how am I going to use it. For example, in one of the schools that I'm working, it's in a very socio-economic lower area, and uh, the the students are challenged, many of them use marijuana and so on, and the headmaster told me, okay, you've got the grade 12s, business studies is a compulsory subject, and you have to get them through towards the end of the year. So what we did is we, we took all the head, uh, the chapters and put it into something with wheels. 
For example, the first chapter is the, uh, the inside of a car, uh, the second chapter the outside, then the engine, then the boot, and then a, um, the a trailer of, or something like that. And then we say, okay, how many headings are there? How many things we need uh, inside the car to actually in unpack the uh, headings? And it's amazing how quickly these students learn uh, the structure of a whole chapter. Yeah, I mean, it's basically making associations mm. between what you're trying to learn and something you know, and then you have that something you know as a readily available cue when it comes time to try to remember. Exactly. And you know what um, John Hattie says, uh, learning is surface learning, deep learning, and transfer learning. But you can't get to deep and transfer learning unless you've got surface learning, when you've got the facts at hand. Mm -hmm. So what we try to do with him is that in the beginning phase, say, how do you actually memorize this which in a quick way and then you can get to aspects like uh, for uh, for example I told them after each chapter you must think how am I going to use this in a real business or imagined business and uh, to make it practice orientated yeah I think it sounds similar to the idea of the memory palace uh, moonwalking with Einstein. Have you heard of that? Well, that's just another name. You know, yeah. Method of Loki, Memory Palace, Roman Room, that's all the same. Yeah. And we'll link to a blog post that we have on our blog, actually, that Carolina Cooper-Tetzel wrote about, uh, I think she called it the Method of Loki, but also Memory Palace. Um, I wanted to just go back to the point you made just now about how it's really important to have the surface knowledge before you can go to the deep and transfer. I think that's a really important thing to highlight because often I feel like these days there might be a sort of a trend to jump straight to the deep and transfer learning and thinking like, oh, we don't need the shallow anymore because I don't know, we have Google or whatever. And mm -hmm. so I'd like to hear, you know, your th I'd like to hear your thoughts on why it's so important to have that quote unquote shallow knowledge and, and how it's then used in the deep and transfer learning. Mm. You see, my son um, studied medicine and he's a medical doctor and I always told him um, I've got this um, nightmare that I wake up on a surgery table and then I look up and there's no one and then I look to the side and all the doctors are huddling across a tablet and they say it's still buffering. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you don't want them to know where to get the knowledge. You want them to know what they are doing. Yes. And that's the basis. You know, the, there's also this, uh, I think, urban legend about Einstein thinking about the relativity um, theory that he was lying under a tree and he was imagining himself uh, going through the universe and so on. And probably it might be true, but if I lie under a tree and think about going through the universe, I will get to relatively nothing because I don't have the basic knowledge to build upon. So if you don't have the building blocks, uh, if you don't have bricks and mortars, you can't be creative in the building that you are going to build. So whatever you do, there are basic knowledge uh, that needs to be in place on the right time before you can actually do something with it. And that is facts. So what that is what also, if I go to the spiral, the first phase is planning. And uh, you know, I've got three aspects of the planning. It's you must be cool, you must be calm, you must be collected. Cool is, firstly, I must be available to learn. I must be focused, no multitasking, those kind of stuff. Uh, calm means I must know what am I going to do for how long. But collected means 
I have to prepare my mind for the information. It's almost for what we are about to receive, you know, there must be a place to, to put it. And for that I say, memorize the headings of each chapter. And that is whether you are in primary school, whether you are secondary school, whether you are at university, or even in the workplace, when you are uh, um, reading a, a journal article online. If you, uh, and especially if it's on tablet and behind glass, you know, where you don't see the, all the pages, you know, if you think about Stanislas Dehan who says we are uh, almost navigating a space. Now you can't navigate uh, in the uh, on a on a computer, or a, so you have to have something to link your information to, and that is why I say memorize the headings before you start reading, because then you know where to pack it's, the information. It's basically creating a knowledge structure. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you must have a schema. It's schema building. It's uh, adding to, but you, but you can't add something if you don't have a structure. And I, this really ties in very well with another guest blog post that we have that by a former student of mine who actually suffers from dysgraphia. So he has trouble handwriting and he's read all the research about how it's better to handwrite than use a computer. And, and he has come up with his own way of compensating for not being able to take those handwritten notes. And what he does is that he takes notes in class, but then he makes a structure for himself and he creates these headings and then he essentially like removes the information to another document and then retrieves based on those headings mm. so it's almost like he's come up with this uh, this same sort of idea but i like i love this idea of memorizing the chapter headings it never really occurred to me ahead of time but i like that yeah and the idea of um having this structure that you know and then you can use that as a cue later on so if you're taking an exam and you're trying to answer a question and you just don't even know where to start and all of the if it's a multiple choice test every all the alternatives seem familiar if you can go back to that structure and figure out well where should i be within the organization of these concepts that yeah. can help narrow it down yes you see and uh, the th what i uh, tell students to do in the second aspect where they start the walking you know where they have to do that you know there uh, part of it what they have to do there is they must go wide they must go deep and then they must go again and go wide means uh, you must first have an overview because what I usually do with students I tell okay this is a chapter open it at that chapter and then start and tell me how are you actually show me how are you studying this and most students uh, of all ages uh, open it and they start reading at word one, uh, intending to get to word 10,000, you know, and uh, then at word 4,000, what's happening in the fridge is actually becoming quite important. So what I tell them, read the first sentence of each paragraph, because with that, linked to the fact that you already memorized with practice testing or with this memory palace or whatever other headings, then you get a quick overview of what's going, what, what is going on in this chapter, and you feel okay. I progress quite handsomely, and then I can uh, get a good idea. After those two steps, I will already be able to tell someone what is the most important thing, what is going on in this chapter. So I've got the idea, and so if I have to do the rest of the chapter, then I do it in detail with all the strategies that we have available. But uh, so, for instance, I'm busy with a, a research project then I can see what okay this article is more or less alright but it's not really what I want I can go further to the next one 
so this is a good idea to get an overview, to get a grasp on work, and then um, to pack it away. Yeah, that sounds that sounds fantastic. And I think this is something that as researchers, we've kind of developed that skill now where we can pick up a paper and skim through it and know whether it's the one that we want to read or not. But for students, I think that's not an obvious skill. It takes time to develop. So I think they're more likely to kind of read deeply something that maybe isn't exactly what they wanted to read and have to get spend a long time to realize that versus being able to pick out the gist and then say, oh, yes, this is something I need to read more deeply versus not. Yeah, because it's a skill that we have to develop. It doesn't come natural to do it like that. You know, with my uh, seniors, fourth years, getting ready to graduate college, I teach a research methods course, and we talk about how to read a research article and approach it. And they're often floored that I tell them, don't start at the beginning and don't read at all, at least not yet. Start, you know, skim through it, and that's what this is for, and we're not going to write our papers in a linear fashion. We're going to write in different pieces and then Mm -hmm. move things around. So I imagine this helps a lot with organization and then understanding the relationships between ideas, which is quite important for that application and transfer piece. Yes, because um, uh, fact, uh, to get facts into your head is not a linear and a needs process. It's quite a messy process, but this gives you a little bit of, of control of what you are doing. Yeah, so, so if you had, if you were going to give teachers, maybe teachers of um, primary, elementary school, or even you know secondary high school teachers, if you were going to give them sort of one takeaway or one application that you think is the most important, something they could start with now, uh, based on this framework and your work, what would that be? What I teach teachers is to use this framework as the structure of your lesson. Because in the beginning you must orientate uh, your learners. And by using this uh, structure, you also model to the students how they have to learn. So, And then they get used to getting into this Uh, almost a ritual of how to learn. Firstly, I have to plan. I must be calm. I must be available. Uh, I get, I know what am I going to do for how long and I get the structure of where are we going. And then you start doing it. And that can be in different ways, matching the learning task to the strategy and that kind of thing. Um, Then um, how do we handle mistakes? For example, Uh, about a class about waves we talked about refraction and reflection and the students uh, messed it up and then I said but okay this is a learning opportunity Uh, so how do I handle mistakes and diversions and so on and then the fourth one uh, how do I learn how do I where do I get my um, uh, information from Uh, and how do I ask for help you know because there is something like learned helplessness that you the moment actually the students want you to do their work for them they just want to sit there and in this way you can't be helped unless you put out your hand to be helped so uh, how do I do this in class and then testing all the way you know even beginning with in the beginning of the lesson with a test even though they haven't done the work which is a, a very good way of teaching because even though they get zero for the test that will prime them for when you get to that part of the information. Say, oh, okay, that's the answer for this. So you must test all along during, mm-hmm. and then in the end, how am I going to use this? Because you know what I uh, usually say: what What is the reason for 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 learning? Uh, and for that, I actually must come back to. Um, most people think when they think about learning strategies, it's about ten tricks to ace maths. 
Well, I say it's a, I call this uh, model a golden spiral for lifelong learning um, because this is something that you can going to do until you die. And the learning is about three major aspects. I tell all the students to begin with this ma ma mantra. I learn for a reason. And I is about I can, learn is I know how, for a reason I know why. And then I ask them, do you know the equation for pi? And everyone say yes, they know it's 22 over 7. Now, have you ever used it? No, we haven't. And then I say, but why do you have to know that? And then I say, but okay, you can actually save money by knowing that. If you go to a pizza place and there's a small, a medium and a large, and you can get the surface area, then I know, is it better to buy two mediums or one large uh, if I do that? So the, uh, as a teacher, you must always, always think, think why in the world does this student need to know this information? And you have to think about that. If you can't answer that, how in the world are they going to answer this? I learn for a reason. That's fantastic. I really like that. Earlier you talked about neuromyths and how you fight against them. And I was wondering, how can we prevent the real science that we're trying to get out there from becoming sort of corrupted or convoluted and turning into another neuromyth? I think what we have to do is to develop a critical uh, stance about everything new that we just say, but is this uh, really something that I can... Uh, uh, bank on is this something that I can believe or is this something that I have to, to that is news that is not uh, believable yeah I think some of the trouble at least with we talk about the learning styles myth a lot I mean it's you know it comes up often when we talk about study strategies and it is related to this dual coding idea it's taking something that's more complicated and sort of boiling it down I think one of the tricky things is that sometimes it feels as an educator, like you can see it working because when you have a student who's struggling, 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 and then you give them that extra piece and now they get it, you think, oh, so they just needed that visual. They're a visual learner. So it's, it's difficult because some of the evidence that we think we're seeing is actually due to other, you know, life isn't a controlled experiment, mm. right? Well, think about the whole idea of um, learning styles and visual and auditory and kinesthetic and many people think okay that makes so much sense but if you think how am I going to do this in a class am I going to put the visuals here and the auditories in the middle and the kinesthetics at the door and then um, say okay for you I have a picture to you I talk but, but then when while I'm talking to you you're not allowed to watch or to listen or something like that it, it, it's, it doesn't work right. it's not practical and in that, that is the, the, the proof of the pudding, uh, whether it's a myth or not, is, is it actually, does it make sense? Yeah, and I, I think what usually then happens is rather than putting everyone in their separate corners, you just teach to all of the different students these different modalities at once. But of course, everyone is absorbing all of those different modalities, and so they're actually getting multimodal learning. So in that way, it's not so harmful. I think it becomes harmful when an individual student then thinks, well, I'm a visual learner, so I'm not going to do well in calculus because I just can't. I can't, yes. I can't learn that way. Yeah, because I'm labeled and mm -hmm. so on. And the fact of the matter is you can't switch off a sense. I can't not look and watch. I can't not listen. Um, so that, that is, 
I think why it developed is because it was the sage on the stage just talking, 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 talking. And at least this brought in some uh, variety. But I think keep the variety without trying to label people. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really fantastic way of putting it. I think, I think that's a great place to stop. So thank you so much. This has been really great. And we'll, we'll post all of your resources that, that you have available on the show notes so that everyone can take a look at the framework and can become familiar with the, what, what did you call it, the golden spiral? Of lifelong learning. Of lifelong learning. I really like that. Thank you. Thank you. The Learning Scientist podcast is funded by The Wellcome Trust and listeners like you.